you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Then Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much. Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshippers and all his priests. Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshippers of Baal. And Jehu ordered, Sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel, and all the worshippers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. They entered the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. He said to them who was in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out the vestments for all the worshippers of Baal. So he brought out the vestments for them. Then Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, and he said to the worshippers of Baal, Search and see there is no servant of the Lord here among you, but only the worshippers of Baal. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed eighty men outside and said, The man who allows any of those who might give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. So as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, Go in and strike them down. Let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal. And they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it. And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all of his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. In those days the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Hazael defeated them throughout the territory of Israel, from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites, the Reubenites, and the Manassites, from Aroer, which is in the valley of Arnon, that is Gilead and Bashan. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu, and all that he did, and all his might, 
Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Jehu slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. And Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his place. The time that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. Good morning, everyone. It's so good to see your faces again. There's a great passage of Scripture or part of Scripture that says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for training, correction, encouragement in righteousness. We come to the Advent season and we come to Christmas, and in some ways we go, when we look at these two chapters, why is this here? Why are we looking at it at Christmas? This morning as we gather together before God's Word, I want you to see with me that God has breathed this out for a purpose. And while it's heavy, there's an encouragement that you and I need to hear this morning, okay? Let's pray that God would do exactly that in these next minutes. Let's come before Him. Father, we come before You, and we humble our hearts beneath You. And we pray, Lord, that as Your Word is opened and as we sit underneath its authority, We pray, Lord, that you would nourish our hearts, you'd give us the sustenance that we need. We pray, Holy Spirit, as we invite your presence to move in our midst, we pray that you would stir up our hearts. We pray, Lord, that as your word is opened, it would be like a double-edged sword piercing through into our hearts, separating those things which are not of you, pointing us to you. And we pray this morning that as we do this and we ask it in faith, we trust and believe our loving Father, this is a prayer that you want us to pray. And it's a prayer that you delight to answer because we ask it in faith, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning with three stories. And the first took place in 1994. And it's the story of a girl called Clementine, who was 17 years old. She was a Christian. She lived with her family in a little village. And one day the soldiers came. They gunned down the rest of her family. They dragged her into the bush. They gang raped her. And then they left her for dead. She survived, she was flown by an aid agency to Belgium for emergency surgery. They performed the surgery but they discovered that these evil men who had destroyed her body had also infected her with HIV. Two years later, she died. The soldiers who did it were never brought to justice. Or another story. This time, it's July 1843, and it's in Australia. A white settler was killed by Aboriginals in Gippsland. A posse of settlers was formed for retaliation. They came upon a a group of Aboriginals camped by a waterhole at Warrigal Creek. An eyewitness recounts these words. They surrounded them and fired into them, killing a great number. Some escaped into the scrub, others jumped into the waterhole, and as fast as they put their heads up for breath, they were shot until the water ran red with blood. At least 60 men, women, and children were murdered that day. The colonial government of Victoria 
never did anything about it. The perpetrators were never brought to justice. Or another story, Naboth. Naboth was a righteous and godly man, living quietly in his part of the inheritance of the promised land, minding his own business, worshipping his God, when his property was coveted by an evil king. And the evil king got his, well, his wife framed this innocent man, and in the middle of a celebration of God's people, he was falsely accused by people who were paid to give false witness. They dragged him out of that celebration, and they stoned him and his sons to death. And they seized his property and used its fruits. Stories like this, you and I know all too well, are just so common. Power is abused. Evil is perpetrated. Crimes are committed. And instead of seeing justice take place, the perpetrators walk free. And God, for his part, he seems to do nothing. Well, today we look, as you heard, at King Jehu. And as you heard at the start, I warn you, this is not chapters of the Bible for little children. It's rated R for extreme violence. It is confronting. It is direct. And the violence is... Intense. And if you come uh, this morning and you have your image of God as a being, divine being, who spends his time obsessing about personal pronouns, a woke being that exists to, to remedy petty little injustices, then this chapter of Scripture, these chapters will stick in your throat. But if as you come to these chapters of Scripture this morning, you come and you want to know a real God the real God, and you come with questions about justice and about the world in which we live, then let me encourage you that in these chapters you will meet and see the real God and you will find in your heart sustenance that you need. Well, have your Bibles open because we're going to be looking at 2 Kings chapter 9 and 10. The Bible reading came from uh, chapter 10, but we'll also be looking at chapter 9. And as we come to chapter 9, we meet the man who is at the center of these two chapters of Scripture. His name is General Jehu. He's a senior army, operations, uh, army officer, and we meet him in chapter 2 Kings chapter 9 in the middle of conducting operations against a town called Ramoth Gilead. He and his staff are, are gathered in a conference. They're making battle plans, probably for the, the next step of the campaign. And a messenger suddenly arrives, and he demands entrance to see General Jehu. And, and the staff look, who is this guy? He probably looks, he's a bit of a sketchy-looking character, probably. But Jehu goes, okay. And he goes into the inner room, and this messenger says this, 2 Kings 9 verse 6, says this. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel, and you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, 
And then this, this sketchy character, he, he just like, he says he just goes out the door, he shuts the door and he bolts and he runs away. And the rest of the army stop, Jehu comes back in and they're like, what did, what did that dude want? What, was, what did that madman want? And Jehu kind of gives a bit of a, a strange smile and, ah, oh, you, you, don't, you don't know what I know. Yeah, we do. T- t- tell us what happened. And with a strange look on his face, Jehu tells what was just said and done. And then to a man, those in the conference room are on their knees, and then the word spreads out, and they're going, long live the king, long live the king. In a moment, Jehu goes from being a general to being the leader of a coup. In a rebellion in the nation of Israel. And the interesting thing you can't miss here is that God instigated it. This prophet that came with the news was sent by God directly. This prophet has given the news and a rebellion has started. And Jehu is given a task and a mission. He's ordered to act and act. He does. Whatever your concerns may be about the character of Jehu as you read this, you cannot accuse him of an unwillingness to act. Jehu is a man of action. And we're going to look at the four acts of judgment. He actually, commit, he actually commits, he does five acts of judgment in these passages of Scripture. We're going to look at four of them now. Firstly, he acts in judgment on King Joram. Joram was King Ahab's son. He was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and he is the first on Jehu's hit list. We find out what happens in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 16. Then Jehu mounted his chariot, and he went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there. And as Jehu uh, rides with his chariot and his his, um, armed body of troops towards the city, a couple of messengers are sent out, and, uh, and they say, are you coming in peace? And Jehu goes, what have you got to do with peace? Fall in behind me. And they fall in behind him, and he continues to ride towards the capital, or towards the city of Jezreel, a big, a big city in Israel. And as he gets closer, uh, the watchman on the wall goes, oh boy, I know who that is. That's Jehu, because only he drives a chariot like that. He's a maniac. You know, this guy, you can imagine, he was a hoon, and he's hooning in that chariot, and he gets closer, and um, as he gets closer, the King Joram of Israel, who, and the, the southern kingdom of Judah, King Ahaziah, he's there as well, happens to be, and they go, well, let's go out and see what he wants. So they ride their chariots out from Jezreel, and they meet him, and we find out, we pick up the action in verse 21. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, set out, each in his chariot, and they went to meet Jehu, and they met him at the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Just store that away. This is where this encounter takes place. And when Joram saw Jehu, he says, you can see the chariots confronting each other, is it peace, Jehu? And this is where we find out that Jehu uses his words like he drives his chariot. Listen to this. He says, What peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? I think think Joram at this point gets the picture that no, Jehu hasn't come in peace. And he turns around in his chariot and he sets off as quick as he can. And then we're told that Jehu calmly draws his bow and shoots him right between the shoulder blades. And Joram slumps, and the king of Israel is dead. Now, this is the first account we see. And you could read, you say, we just saw a murder take place. 
And there was certainly a death of a man, a death of a king, but we will see this is not a murder, this is justice. And listen to the way that Jehu speaks of it in verse 25. Jehu said to Bidkar his aid, take King Joram out and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember, you and I, we rode side by side behind Ahab his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him, as surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now therefore, take him up, throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. Ahab's son, Joram, lies bloody and dead on the ground of Naboth the Jezreelite, where his son where, where, where Naboth and his sons lay bloody and dead. First judgment. Now, second judgment, judgment on Jezebel. <laughs> I actually love this moment. Look, I, I, I take this with a grace. I love this passage. This is not going to be my pin-up passages in Scripture on my toilet door, right? But I do love this, this little bit for a couple of reasons. I love it because we see Jezebel in full flight. Now, Jezebel, you remember, is the most evil woman in the Bible, bar none. But she's got guts. She's got style. And it's true, we can admire evil sometimes. This woman, she hears the news, what's just happened to, to King Joram. She gets the news, you know, I don't know, someone sends her an email, says, you better run because he's coming for you. And then when Jehu arrives, and he's only got one purpose and she knows it, we're told that she, she puts on her makeup, she does her eyeliner and her mascara, puts on a new kit, a new, new, uh, nice little outfit, and she waits for him in the upper room, maybe on the, the wall or the city gate. He's got guts. And when he arrives, we find that in uh, verse 32, he doesn't even speak to her. She's there at the window and she gives him a bit of lip. And then he says, verse 32, and he lifted up his face to the window and he said, who's on my side? Who? And two or three eunuchs looked out to him and he said, throw her down. So they threw her down and some of her blood spattered on the wall and the horses and they trampled on her. So ends Jezebel, but what I, I also love about this passage is Jehu's response. Maybe I don't love it, but maybe I just find it fascinating. This is the end of evil with all its pomp and ceremony. This is Jezebel, right? Remember her? The ones who, who incited Ahab and together this regime for decades persecuted God's people, killed his prophets, destroyed his religion, and, and Jehu just says, just throw it down. And she's trampled on, there's blood on the horses, and then he goes, I'm hungry, let's go and get some lunch. And he just walks right past her body, and he, we're told he sits in there, verse 33, he has his lunch, and as he's munching away on his sandwich, he goes like, ah, oh, he says this, see now, this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. And so they go out uh, to find her, but they discover that while Jehu's been having his sandwich, the dogs have been having their lunch too. And we're told that when they try and find her, all they can find is a few miscellaneous body parts. And once again, um, you could read this and go, we have just heard another horrific 
murder. Murder of a woman. But this is not a murder, this is justice. And Jehu remembers again what was said in chapter 9, verse 36. And this, this is what he says. When they came back and told him that she'd been eaten by dogs, he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, this is Jezebel. So two acts of, of bloody judgment, now a third. And it's on the rest of Ahab's son. In chapter 10, verse 1, we're told that Ahab has 70 sons living in Samaria. They're, they're the sons of his harem. Um, they're the next generation of leaders, and they're being entrusted to the, the leadership of the city to bring them up and raise them as the, noble, the nobles of the nation of Israel. And these, of course, are the next generation of future kings. And so Jehu writes a letter, uh, and he sends it to the city of the noblemen, and he says to them, all right, choose one of the sons of Ahab, and you make him king, and then when you've done, I'll come and fight, and we'll have a battle, and we'll see who wins. So get on with it. Let's get going, man of action. And they respond, uh, no, we, actually, we don't like that. We don't, and well, he says, all right. You don't want to fight me? Well, then take all 70 of Ahab's sons, chop off all their heads and put them in a basket and bring them to me in a big basket. And we're told what happens in 10 verse 7. And as soon as the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, 70 persons, and put their heads in baskets and sent them to him in Jezreel. You might say, now we have family violence, 70 kids, 70 princes of Israel slaughtered. But once again, this is not murder. This is justice. And the final judgment we heard read together in the, the reading that we just had before in chapter 10. And it happens in verse 18. And it seems initially that Jehu is going rogue because he, he calls for a big Baal first festival. It's like, everybody, this is, this is the state festival. You want every worshiper of Baal needs to get there. And Jehu said, look, Ahab, remember him? He worshiped Baal just a little bit. I'm going to worship him a lot. And we're going to have the best worship service for Baal that we've ever had. It's going to be packed. Make sure you're there. And the word goes out throughout the nation of Israel. All of the worshippers of Baal are gathered together. And, and it goes on for quite a while. They, they crowd into the building. It's lovely to have a, a full building here. But imagine a building probably much bigger than that, the main temple of Baal in the nation of Israel. And people are packed in. There's no OH and S. There's no QR codes. There's none of that stuff. Everyone is just packed in. No one wants to miss a spot. And then up the front, you know, Jesus says, yeah, let's get the sacrifices going. So the sacrifice is going. Then he goes and says, and just, just make, is there any followers of Yahweh here? Because, you know, we're going to sort you out. Anyone? Any, any hands? Okay, good. All right. And so in the middle of the worship service, people are gathered there. It's, it's pumping. You know, I'm, the smoke machine's rolling out smoke. And it's really happening. And at that moment, Jehu's outside with his 80 squad of commandos. And he says, right, when I give the word, you go in there, you draw your swords, and you kill everybody. And don't you let one single person escape. If you do, you're dead. And at that moment, you know, the worship of Baal is going on, the soldiers burst in, and it becomes an absolute bloodbath. 
And then Geo, in an act of religious tolerance, decides to turn the Temple of Baal into a public toilet. Now, <laughs> you read these chapters, you see why they're difficult chapters? And I've actually missed one of the judgments. There's more there as well. I've only gone for four out of five. This is blood-soaked. This must be one of the most blood-soaked episodes in the entire Bible. It's confronting, and it's easy in one sense to have it at arm's length and read it as a story, but remember, these are people. This is happening to real people, and blood is everywhere. And if they made a movie of this, those of us with small children would protest to Hollywood about gratuitous violence, and we wouldn't let our kids watch it. But here it is in the Bible, isn't it? Here it is in all of its details. You're feeling a little bit disturbed? Well, what should really make you disturbed is the attitude of the Bible towards the events that you just heard read, because it's absolutely unequivocal. Listen to verse 30 again. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. Hard to mistake God's attitude towards this, isn't it? God says to Jehu, well done, my good and faithful servant. You did what was in my heart to do. Well done. Does it make you feel uncomfortable? Uh, does it make you feel embarrassed if, if uh, you're not a Christian here and you're watching or you're, you've come physically? How does this make you feel about the God of the Bible? Does it reinforce your prejudices you might have about the bloodthirsty Old Testament God? Or if you are a Christian, how would you feel talking to someone at work and saying, look, I've got a passage of Scripture I'd love to read with you. Open up your Bibles to 2 Kings and let's read 9 and 10 together. It's easy to, to be embarrassed by these kind of things. I mean, at one level, it's easy to read it as a really exciting narrative. But theologically, when you think about it deeper, it, it's disturbing, and it, it should be disturbing. If you are not disturbed at all by this, you'll probably have some sort of psychopathic tendencies going on in your heart. It's disturbing stuff. But I want to tell you that this morning, and as we look at what it means for us, I want to tell you why this passage makes me rejoice, why this passage uplifts my heart. I want to tell you, I think, one of the reasons why this is recorded in Scripture and why these events took place, because the Bible tells it, it wasn't just written for them as a historical record, it was written for us that we might know how to live on whom the end of the ages has come. So let me tell you why I rejoice, a couple of reasons. Firstly, because it shows us that God is not impotent. God is omnipotent. He's not impotent. In the face of injustice, injustice over there like Clementine, Injustice over here, like that massacre in our own Australian history. Injustice in our own families. Injustice in our own state. There are many injustices in our state, like the, the state-sanctioned murder of many thousands of children in the womb every year in progressive Victoria. Injustices like this. Injustices 
that are horrific, injustices like the Holocaust, injustices like the genocide in Armenia, injustices like what the Taliban has done. In the face of these injustices, Scripture tells us God is not impotent. God is omnipotent. You might have have heard of what happened after the the Nazis' um, regime ended at the end of World War II. Many Nazis who were well-connected took their money and their stolen things and they fled to places like South America, like Argentina, and they set up new lives with money and wealth and it looked like they'd got away, except there was one man with a mission and his name was Simon Weisenthal, the Nazi hunter. He gave his life to tracking these Nazis down and bringing them to justice. Now, many of those Nazis died before they were caught. Some of them were never caught. But what the Bible says as we look at Jehu is that God is a far greater Nazi hunter than Simon Weisenthal ever could be. He is a hunter who always gets his prey. And when he sees injustice, like the injustice that, remember, remember last week we looked at Ahab? And the constant, unreasonable mercy of God, that God seemed blind to Naboth, that God seemed blind to all the injustice, he did nothing. Jehu tells us that God will deal with injustice. God is not impotent in the face of the sufferings in our world. God is omnipotent. And he sees it, and he will deal with it, and it makes me rejoice when I see the brokenness of this world to know that there is a God who cares about injustice, and as Jehu shows us, he will deal with it. That's the first thing. And the second thing that makes me rejoice as I look at this is that God will deal with his enemies in the world, not just with injustice in general, God will deal with his enemies. This is encouraging, because if you hadn't noticed, God has many enemies. He always has. God's people, those who follow him, the the remnant, if you like, are the minority. Now, across the world today, there are many millions of people who own the name of Jesus and are God's people. But God has enemies, and they are alive and well. God has enemies had enemies throughout history who have lifted themselves up against God, who have trampled his name in the mud, who have persecuted his people specifically, and it's not just historical, it happens today. Like North Korea, or many places in China, many parts like, like Afghanistan, what has happened there this calendar year. God has enemies and they seem to be powerful and they seem to do their will and their way with God's people who seem like sheep before the slaughterers. God's enemies lift up their fists against God and they seem to get away with it. They grow stronger, they get re-elected perhaps if they're in a democracy. Their, their hold on power gets tighter. And this passage of Jehu tells us that not only will God deal with all generic injustice, he will deal with his enemies. And he will deal with them firmly. And he will deal with them with full justice and they will not escape. There's comfort here. Ahab and Jezebel appeared to get away with it. But their day was coming. The wheels of God's judgment grind very slow, but they grind exceedingly fine. 
in the end. The judgment of God will be pure and holy and utterly relentless. And I imagine in those two things, at least if you are a Christian person, you, you agree with me that your heart goes, yes, I want to see injustice come to an end. And yes, I want to see the justice done on those who persecute God and his, or those who profane God's name and persecute his people. Yeah, I, I, I want to see that. But the last area of God's judgment is perhaps the most confronting of all. And it, that was Jehu's judgment on the worshippers of Baal. People that had, had bought the Baal propaganda, that Baal was the God who you went to if you wanted to get blessed in life, that Baal who was the God if you wanted to prosper, that they had bought that lie, they had believed it, they were probably nice people and good neighbors, they were probably people who just got sucked in, and yet in that encounter in that temple, God's justice burns against them, and they are destroyed. And you say, well, how does that make you rejoice? And I'm not sure if this makes me rejoice, actually. Because, because we live in a world where there is masses of idolatry. And by idolatry, I don't just mean the, the worship of false gods, although that is rampant in many parts of the world. I mean the idolatry in the human heart. The idolatry that says that, God, I know that in my deepest being that you created the world and you created it good. And I know that you're out there and I know that you're real and I even know that you're extending to me a hand of love and grace as you did with Ahab. But I'm not interested because I've got bigger fish to fry. I've got things to live for that, I, that, I'm, that are going to satisfy me. And you know these things. You, you, you hear them all the time in Scripture. Money is the one that Jesus brings again and again. You live for your money. You think that your money will satisfy you, and you trample on the name of God. And, and you see that happen everywhere in a materialist culture like ours. Give me the things I don't need God, I need the things and I'll be happy. But there's so many other things. We live for power and authority. If only I climb the career chain and I get to where I want to, then that's what I'm living for. God, you're just over there, you're doing your thing. We live for families, don't we? Like the people that are close to us, I've got my relationships, I'm living for you, I'm living for my kids, I'm living for my, my wife, my husband, I'm living for that, I'm living for my grandkids, that's what I'm living for. And God, yeah, you're over there, but you're, all of it, the Bible says, is idolatry, it's taking something that is good usually, and it's elevating it to something that becomes an object of worship, and that's bad. The God who created all things and gives them freely to us, to his people and to the world, and the world responds by refusing to worship him and lifting up the things he gives instead, worshiping the gifts, not the giver. It's idolatry. And we see here that there will come a time when God will deal with idolatry. The idolatry that is overt, idolatry, the worship of false gods, and the idolatry that is deep in the human heart. And there'll come a time when there'll be a gathering together and there will be judgment. God will expose the secrets of the human heart. His judgment will one day fall with a bright and unrelenting intensity on all idolatry, on all false worship. In 2 Kings, we see that God was patient to continue this for hundreds of years. 
But the example of King Jehu is there will come a time when enough is enough. And God will deal with it. Because he deserves true worship. And anything else is a profanity and a blasphemy against the one who created us. God will deal with idolatry. And, and here's something maybe you've never thought of before. Jehu is a type of Jesus Christ. So hang on, I, I can see how a lot of kings could be types. You know, a, a type is like a, a model of something that is greater. I, I can see how a lot of characters in the Bible could be types of Jesus, but not Jehu. This guy is just like a, a vengeance freak. This, how can he be like Jesus? Well, he is a type of Jesus. And when we see Jesus, we're right to go. Jesus is gentle and humble and lowly of heart. Jesus is patient and forgiving, slow to anger. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Jesus is the one that comes alongside the broken. Jesus is the one who reaches the outcast that everybody else pushes away. That's who Jesus is. And you look through the scriptures and you see his identity overflowing in that gentleness and quietness and humility. Friend of sinners. That's who he is. But Jesus also in the scriptures is the enemy of all those who are proud. Jesus is the enemy of those who lift themselves above his name. Jesus is the enemy of all that is false and all that is evil and all that is unjust. And because Jesus is not just only loving, kind, good, he's also holy, pure, righteous, this is the same Jesus. There is a part of Jesus which is just like Jehu. There's a part of Jesus that burns for justice and hates injustice. And you say, well, Andrew, I don't think that's true. Well, look at the Scriptures and you will see this is who Jesus is also. There is a part of Jesus that hears the cries of his persecuted people. Let's look at Revelation 6, verse 9 to 11. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. These ones who have been martyred for their faith in Jesus are looking at the world and going, how long? How long before you're going to deal with this? How long before you are going to avenge it? And that's the question that still hangs in the air, isn't it? How long, Jesus, before you come and deal with all of this, as you said that you would? How long? And this is the, the response, Revelation 6, 12 to 17. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? The wrath of the Lamb, the Lamb is Jesus Christ. Jew carried out the word of God with zeal and he brought punishment on those who deserved it. 
He dealt justice where there was injustice, and in that he is a model of Jesus Christ. Listen to how 2 Thessalonians put it. And, and think about Jesus as you hear these words from Scripture. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. The Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of Jehu, the avenging king, the one bringing God's justice on a world where there is so much injustice. But Jehu is not Jesus either. He's a type, but he's only a foreshadowing. He's not the real thing. And sadly, Jehu, in his vengeance on his thirst for justice, was blind to something else in his own heart. Jehu was content to, to levy judgment on the idolaters, but also to conceal idolatry in his own heart at the same time. Listen to how he's judged at the end. This is after his commendation, it's sad. Chapter 10, 31, But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. You know, it's possible for us to come and just cheer on Jehu. Yes, I can't wait. Or, and imagine that time when Jesus returns, and the, I just can't wait till Jesus returns in those this flaming fire with angels and just striking down the people that are just turning their backs on him and the people that are shaking their fists. I can't wait for that to happen. And there's a part of us which is right. We should feel that. We should long for the day of his appearing. But it's also true that we must very, be very careful that we do not celebrate God's judgment on idolatry while concealing it in our own hearts. Jesus had a word for the people who did that. Hypocrites. Keen to see God's judgment on others, but hiding the same things in our hearts and somehow expecting that he won't see. Hypocrisy. I was chatting with um, the lead pastor of Sitting on a Hill, Guy Mason, this week, and we were chatting about that, about what do we do with Jehu. And he, he said these words, and, and I'll quote him. He said, I feel there's perhaps a timely word here. We've all met and maybe been the righteous warrior, judging the world rightly but blind to our own sin, waging war with the surrounding pagans or making peace with our own sin in our hearts. Easy to do, isn't it? See the sins of others and, and come in judgment on them while ignoring the, the sins of our own heart, which are different but are still sins before a holy God, which are still idolatry before the same God, to rejoice in God's judgment of idolaters and conceal idolatry in our own hearts. This is why, you know, it's not Jehu, it's not Cyrus, not Karl Marx, 
not Donald Trump, who are God's instruments of judgment in the world. Finally, political leaders and, and those people, you know, people are used by God to bring about his purposes in the world, like Jehu was. But we should give thanks to God that Jehu is not our saviour. That Jehu is not the one who will execute God's final righteousness, righteous judgment. The true king who judges in the fullness of God's righteousness is the king that we celebrate at Christmas. The king who comes as a baby. You see Jehu doing that? The king who withholds in patience and kindness his anger and comes in gentleness. That's the true king. And when he judges, when he finally judges on that day, he will do so with absolute purity and absolute righteousness, but absolute compassion and kindness too. He's the judge that we can entrust ourselves to. And he's the judge we can entrust at the end of time. No one will go, it's unfair what you did to me. It's unfair that I'm going to eternal hell apart from you. It's unfair. Not one person will be able to say God judges in Jesus Christ with complete impartiality, fairly and kindly. So it's important to remember as we close this passage that Jesus is the avenging king, not us, not his church. Jesus bears the sword, we don't. Jesus will deal with all those who defy him, we don't have to. Jesus will come and deal with righteousness. So for us, we can bless those who persecute it. For us, we can submit to authorities. We can love all people. We can seek to win the lost and the broken, that we can live in society where idolatry is rampant, knowing that in God's grace there's still idolatry in our own hearts. And we can come with gentleness and love to a world that is broken and bowed under injustice. We seek to serve and to win the lost, not to judge them. We are ministers of God's kindness and love, and we, even when it hurts, even when we chafe under the Ahabs and the Jezebels of this world, we do so knowing that the true King, the King, the Lord Jesus who came at Christmas, will one day deal with it all. And we wait on him. Romans 12, 19 makes it very clear. I'm going to close with this. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We can rejoice when we see Jehu because we know that in the Lord Jesus Christ, God will deal with injustice. He will deal with all that is broken and he will do that from a heart of purity. Vengeance is his. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to, we're going to sing together and bide the musicians up. But let's pray. Father, we, we come and 
And sometimes we want to imagine you as, as a God who's just a big push-around teddy bear, as a God who just smiles at us all the time, as a God who is, is helpless to deal with anything, with the evil in our world, with its strength and its virulence and its anger and its rage and its blasphemy. But we thank you, Lord, that in Scripture we see that you are a God who is not impotent, but who is omnipotent, and that you will deal with all injustice. And we thank you that in Scripture we see that there will come a day, a judgment day, when we stand before the great seat of judgment and each one receives for what he has done. And we thank you for that truth. And Lord, we just thank you as well that in the Lord Jesus, that the judgment we deserved has already fallen on him. The king himself who will judge is the one who bears the cross. And so we thank you, Lord, that uh, today we don't have to go out trying to make things right in the world. But we go out as men and women who love the Lord Jesus and submit to him. And we go out as his hands and feet in this world, knowing that we can trust judgment to the one who judges. So we pray that you'd help us to do this, not to be blind to the idolatry in our own heart as, as we go out into the world, but to come humbly before you and to ask that we would live in purity with you. And we pray these things this morning, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.